I would encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter number 1. We'll begin at verse number 15. Ephesians number one, chapter number one, beginning with verse number 15, and we'll go through verse number 23. And here is how the word of the Lord reads. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is the most urgent need in the church today? Is the most urgent need less consumerism? Is the most urgent need more evangelism? Is, is the most urgent need greater sexual purity? Is the most greatest, is the greatest, excuse me for my grammar, is the greatest need the need for more biblical knowledge, or any of these are greatest need. The one thing we most urgently need today in the Western church is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. 
Not only is that the need, the most urgent need of today, but it was also the most urgent need for this church in Ephesus. And so Paul, writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, gives a prayer request and report here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus is simply this, that they would know God. Oftentimes in letters, epistles, there's a greeting there's an address, and then there's a thanksgiving. And that's where we find ourselves here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul begins with this statement of thanksgiving. The first thing that Paul sets out in verse 15 and 16 is the reason for gratitude. He gives us the reason for gratitude. Paul opens this section by grounding his prayer or the basis of his thankfulness uh, um, in verses 3 through 14. That's what you all studied last week with Pastor Josh Black. I preached that passage uh, before. I preached three sermons, what he preached in one. But if I were to preach it again, I'd say... I have a reason. Actually, I go back to the hood and I say, I got a reason to praise the Lord. And Paul reminds us that we have at least three reasons to praise the Lord in verses 3 through 14. First of all, he says, you've got a reason to pray God the Father because you've been adopted into his family. Oh, that's the response right there. Those of us, we, we, we don't have a birthright. By, 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 by nature to be in God's family. No, we have to be born again to be in the family of God. And that new birth could only come through Jesus Christ. And because we are now in Christ, we have now been adopted into the family of God. He says, you've got to, and all of this, God did this. Here's the refrain we hear over and over in the first section is to the praise of his glory. All of this has been done so that God would be glorified. So even if you feel like this morning that you have no reason to praise God, money is funny, change is strange, credit won't get it. You're saying, Brendan, I have no reason. Marriage is struggling right now. I have no reason. Paul says, you and I, you've been adopted into the family of God. You are a son and a daughter of God. You have a reason. I didn't mean to go there this morning to praise the Lord. But Paul says, let me give you another reason to praise the Lord. He says, not only have you been adopted, but you've been redeemed because of the Son. You, you, you've been purchased. You've been bought with the price. And that price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so no, you are no longer a slave to the enemy. You are no longer a slave to sin. But you have been redeemed. You are free. And my friends, whom the Son sets free is free. I wish I had a witness in here. And Paul says, because you've been redeemed, you have another reason 
to give God praise. Don't y'all tell my buddy I preached his sermon all over again. But Paul says, not only does God the Father give you a reason, and not only does God the Son give you a reason to praise God, but he says the Spirit is also a reason to praise God. He says the Spirit himself is the seal. The seal. The seal was a mark of ownership. A, a, a person who owned anything, they would put their seal on any of their significant possessions. And that would let them know, this belongs to me. And Paul says, the fact that you now have the Holy Spirit, God has sealed you by giving you the Holy Spirit. And he is now our guarantee. He is, in other words, he's the down payment that the best is yet to come. He says the Holy Spirit is the, the down payment that you've got future blessings in store for you. And so, friends, if you need another reason to praise the Lord, he says the Holy Ghost yeah. is reason enough to give God praise. And now Paul says, for this reason, based on all of that, and because I have heard of your faith and love for the saints, I give God thanks. Notice closely what gets Paul excited about in this church. It's not, let's actually look at what Paul, what doesn't get Paul excited. It's not the average Sunday attendance. It's not being on the list of the top 25 fastest growing churches in America. It's not having an enormous budget. It's not even their influence in the community of Ephesus. What excites Paul about this church are two things, faith and love. Friends, look at this. This is a a paradigm shift. These are both two things that cannot be objectively measured. Today, we try to look at what a successful church is. Listen, I'm going to give you all a little insight of what happens when we go to these conferences where there's nothing but pastors. Here's what we say to one another. Here's the first thing they ask you before they even ask how you're doing. Hey, man, how many are you running? In other words, that means how many people are coming on, a, on Sunday? What's the average attendance? Because we have made that the, 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 the mark of success in the church. How, how many people you got on staff? How many programs do you have at your church? How big is the offering on a weekly basis? We like to look to things that we can objectively measure to determine if we are being successful. But Paul says, that don't bring me joy. Those things are good things. But the problem in the church is we make good things God things. See, even pastors, elders, and leaders, we can make idols out of these objective measures of attendance, butts in the seats, and budgets. But but, but Paul says, let me tell you what really brings me joy. Faith and love. Why are these two things bringing Paul joy? You you must remember 
that the church in Ephesus, where I told the group on Wednesday night, I said, we must remember that when in the first century, there, there was a cost to being a Christian. To, to become a Christian was to put your life on the line. Persecution was real. Persecution was likely. And now Paul is receiving reports while he's in prison that this church is persevering. In their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they, they were being steadfast and immovable. They, they were not cowering in the face of opposition. And like us, the church in Ephesus lived in a pluralistic society. They, they lived in a culture that said, you can believe anything you want. They, they lived in a culture that said, what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. They lived in a culture where nobody was ever wrong. They lived in a culture that said, you can have your Savior, and I can have my Savior, but, but don't make any exclusive claims to your Savior. They, they lived in a very pluralistic society, but despite that, they were still holding on to their faith. They were proving that their initial saving faith was genuine. And for this, Paul is Friends, are you thankful for other brothers and sisters in Christ? Can you only be thankful when God does something for you? Listen, here's the way the old preacher said, sometimes when you can't shout for yourself, sometimes you ought to be able to shout because what God is doing in somebody else's life. You, you ought to be able to look around and, 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 and something jumps up in your spirit because you're seeing the goodness of God in other people's lives. And this is what happened to Paul. Paul, was, he heard these reports of what was happening in this church and it brought him joy and all he could say was thank you. Thank you, Lord. I thank you that sister so-and-so is still saved. Lord, I thank you that sister so-and-so and brother so-and-so is growing in their faith. I, I, I thank you. We ought to be thankful for others. We ought to rejoice over the growth and maturity of one another. And Paul says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't help but say thank you to God because it is God who has done all this work of saving you and keeping you saved. God preserves his saints, and the saints persevere in their faith. He says, but not only am I thankful for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I'm also thankful for your love for all the saints. He says, I heard of how y'all are loving one another. Friends, this is significant. And I'm going to let a, a white preacher from Mississippi preach this part of the sermon for me. Because otherwise, I get accused of having an agenda. Here's what that white preacher down in the deep south of Mississippi said. 
He says this church in Ephesus was a mixed church. It was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. Yet they did not let their former ethnic hostilities hinder them from loving one another. That's what he said. Now I'm back preaching. <laughs> Friends, genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ changes our identity. Our primary identity is not our ethnicity. Our primary identity is rooted in Christ alone. I'm not making this up, y'all. This is really a big deal for Paul because in a couple of weeks, he's going to tell them, you remember at one time, you Gentiles, you were not part of God's promised people. You were, not, you were not a part of the circumcision. You were not a part of God's covenant. But now because of Christ, we are one new man. I think Paul ties these two together, faith and love, because real faith, genuine faith in God overflows in tangible, observable love for others. Genuine faith in God overflows in tangible, observable love for others. Friends, an unloving Christian is a contradiction. Let me push the envelope. An unloving Christian is probably not a Christian at all. So Paul says, I thank God for your faith and your love. And like Paul, I too as a pastor must say, I thank God for your faith and your love. It's hard to measure the health of a church. It's hard to measure the quote-unquote success of the church, but I can sense that your esteem for Jesus is growing more and more. I see that as a sign of success. I can see y'all loving one another. I hear the reports too. You are loving one another in times of need whether that's financially or whether it's just being present in times of, of, of crisis or loneliness. We are loving one another. We help one another out. We are a family. This is free. Where I'm from, we used to say water. That ain't what we said. We said blood is thicker than water. That means if you mess with my cousin, I'm coming for you. <laughs> get ready to get jumped. <laughs> you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. Because blood is thicker than water. My wife is one of five. You mess with one of them chambliss, you just mess with all five of them. And, and one, I can tell you, one of them loved to fight. <laughs> That's our calling card. <laughs> she wake up ready to fight. <laughs> yes, Lord. I'm going to tell you which one. <laughs> mm -hmm, but you better not mess with them. <laughs> oh, Lord. I remember one time Cunny had a scratch on her shoulder uh, when her sister looked. Who, who, what happened? What, who gave you that scratch? She ready to fight me. 
I told him it was the imaginary dog we had. <laughs> yeah, Leah, I didn't want to fight. Because blood is thicker than water. Family sticks together. That was the principle. The only thing is now we need to gospelize that same. And we must remember that blood is thicker than water. What unites us is the blood of Jesus Christ. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And we stick together because of the blood of the Lamb. We are a family. Now. But still with family, you have to have boundaries. I got to move on. That's not what this sermon is about. <clears throat> so we, we see, first of all, in this text, the reason for gratitude. But secondly, Paul moves on. Now he's going to make the request known, the request made known. That's second, my second point. The request made known, that's in verse 17. This gets to the heart of Paul's prayer, the heart of Paul's intercession. Verse 17, this gives the content of Paul's prayer. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, and of revelation, and the knowledge of him. Paul's request to God on behalf of this church is that they would know God better and deeper. And Paul knows that the means, the agent for acquiring this said knowledge is not through none other than the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives wisdom. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives revelation. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. Let's, let's talk through these two things, wisdom and revelation. Wisdom is the capacity to understand and function. Wisdom is the capacity to understand and function. Wisdom is knowledge applied. God wants them, Paul wants for them to be able to comprehend the knowledge of God and then live based on that knowledge. Why? Because knowledge leads to holiness. Friends, let's make sure we understand something. The aim of teaching and studying the word of God is never the accumulation of information. The goal of teaching and studying is transformation. For us to look more like our big brother, Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I want you to have wisdom. And the Spirit has to give us that wisdom. But, but Paul says, not, not only do you need wisdom, but you also need revelation. Now, let, let's spend a minute or two on this term, Revelation. The term revelation, it means to disclose. Usually, when we refer to revelation, we mean God's self-disclosure of his person, his will, his plan, his gospel, and the like. God has fully, according to Hebrews 1, God has fully and finally revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. Everything that God has revealed is now found in Holy Scripture, the Bible. 
And we believe that the Bible is complete. We believe in a closed canon, canon, which means that there is no new revelation. Ooh, y'all done got quiet on me now. Because you just watch your, fam- your favorite preacher on television and they told you that the Lord revealed something to them. And so now, this other preacher that you put up with <laughs> is telling you there is no new revelation. In the strictest sense of the term, I, I, I know I'm right. <laughs> I humbly say that, by the way. <laughs> I am humble. <laughs> There is no new revelation. God is not giving new revelation. He's already done it through the apostles, the prophets, uh, 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 through Jesus Christ. We now have the full revelation of God in Scripture. So friends, when somebody tells you that God reveals something to them, you better listen closely. Because if it ain't Scripture, it ain't revelation. Here's Here's the way I've been taught. If it's new, it ain't true. You can use that, because I stole it. Remember that, if it's new, it ain't true. But why would Paul say he wants them to have revelation then? Because that word also means illumination. There it is. That's what most of the time we mean when we say revelation. What we really mean is illumination. To illumine is to shed light on something. And so oftentimes when we... Read and hear of these from the, 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 these truths of God's word. We we approach them honestly. I read this text like twenty two times. I just made up the number, but it was a lot. And after the twenty second time, this is what I said: I have no idea what's happening in this passage. I'm like, I don't know what 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 we're gonna do at the British Church on Sunday morning because I don't get it. But because of the Spirit, he illumined my mind. He gave me clarity. What what was dark in my mind, he brought light to. So that now I had a better understanding, and now I can teach you. And and, and so that's what Paul wants them. He wants them to have spiritual enlightenment. That's actually what he says in, in the next verse. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So what he's praying for, is spiritual discernment and spiritual enlightenment so that they would know God. That's the request made known. Friends, this is the great need of the day. This is the urgent need of the day. We need to know God better and deeper. We know a lot about God. But we need to know God experientially and intimately. Friends, the knowledge of God is crucial. This is oftentimes what what, what caused the downfall of the Israelites in the Old Testament. Remember, we studied the book of Hosea a while ago. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. God says, I have a controversy against my people because there was no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. How do we know there was no knowledge of God in the land? Next verse. They were committing acts uh, uh, like they were ignorant, such as swearing, lying, murder, stealing and committing adultery. All of these God revealed at the very beginning in the Ten Commandments. 
but now they were acting as if they had no knowledge. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, God says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Friend, this is crucial. We need to know God. That's why we are so intent on teaching God's word and studying God's word. So that we might know God. That's why you have to sit through a 50-minute sermon. The more we know God, the more our affections will grow for God. So this is a prayer we need to be praying over ourselves and for one another, that we will grow in our knowledge of God. So we see the reason for Paul's gratitude. Now we've seeing the request made known. Paul now, in verses 19 through 23, gives us the results desired. The results desired from this prayer and God's answering this prayer. Verse number 19. The desire is that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. Enlightened concerning three things in particular. One, the hope of our calling. Paul wants them to be enlightened about the hope of our calling. Let's attack this in reverse. What is our calling? That word call means to summon, to invite. I think Paul is pointing back in the immediate context to Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4. Remember, in Ephesians 1, chapter 4, here's what it says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Friends, none of us on our own come to God, come to Christ on our own. On our own, we are rebels. On our own, we would deny Jesus Christ. On our own, we run away from God. And so God has to do a work in our heart to summon us to him. To invite us to him. God, and the reason he sends this summons, think about a king who summons someone based on his authority to appear before them. That's what God does in his, in, in his sovereignty. He summons us to himself. And he, we have, he has to summon us because we would not come to him on our own. Now, but you're saying, Brandon, why? The, the text never says that he called us to these things. Well, that's why biblical context matters. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Remember this, these words in this text, Ephesians 1, he talks about being chosen. He talks about being predestined. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, here's what it says. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's, that's what, uh, uh, what we call the golden chain of salvation. The order of salvation, predestination, calling, justification, and then glorification. Whom he predestined, he called. And whom he called, he justified. Which means that his calling is effective. Who he calls will be justified. Whom he calls will say yes to him. Whom he calls will respond by faith. There is no resisting it. That's how effectual his call is. Listen, 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 listen. I can, I'm not going to rehash Wednesday night. Wednesday night we talked about predestination and election and all that good stuff that we like to fight about. Listen, I, I've gotten to the point now to where I don't want to argue about being predestined or being called or being chosen. I'm just glad to be in the number. Now, if you want to take me out to lunch, we can argue about it. But listen, I'm just glad that he chose me to be a part of his family. He predestined us. Y'all, here's the good thing about this. I'm trying not to shout on y'all. I think I'm about to take my first lap. That word predestined means that before the foundations of the world, before God ever said, let there be, he changed our destiny. Okay, okay, okay. I know why you're not running with me because you think you deserve to go to heaven because you're such a good person. You think your destiny ought to be with God forever because you ain't did nothing too wrong. But one day when I was lost, Jesus died upon the cross. I know it was the blood for me. All of us are sinners by nature and by choice. And what we deserve is a rightful place in hell. But God changed that thing. He changed our destiny before your mama was. Before your mama's mama was. Oh, happy Mother's Day, by the way. Before your mama's mama mama was. He changed our destiny. Y'all took too long. I'm done now. He predestined us. He, 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 he chose us. He called us. Now. This call, even in Romans 8.30, it's not just to be saved, but it's to stay saved and to eventually be completely saved from all of sin and its effects. You know, and I know, we still feel the effects of sin today. Some of y'all came here mad this morning for whatever reason. You feel the effects of sin. But one day, we're going to be glorified. This is our hope that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, death will be defeated completely because Jesus is going to say, come forth. And all the dead in Christ will rise and we will be with him. And when Christ shall return, everything will be made right. We have this hope. And so Paul says, I want you to know the hope of your calling. Friends, we... We live in a dis disastrous world. Every day we see the effects of living in a fallen world. Yeah. 
children are abused and neglected. There's crimes against humanity. Mothers are being murdered and leaving little babies all to them. Oh, we see the effects of sin every day. It's hard not to become discouraged and depressed in this world, but we have a hope that one day death will fully and finally be, be, be defeated. One day sin will be no more. We have this hope, and this hope is greater than anything the world could ever offer. And Paul says, I want you to know that you 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 know you have this hope. He says, I want your hearts to be enlightened about the hope of our calling, but I also want you to be enlightened so that you know the glorious inheritance of the Father. He wants us also, secondly, to know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, or of the saints. This is referring to God's inheritance. God's, what God inherited, inherited was a people. Now, be careful. That word inheritance, it simply means to possess. In other words, the church is now God's people. We are now possessed by God. We are Value, we, 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 we are possessed by God and we belong to God. This kind of goes back to Old Testament language, covenant language. Uh, they shall be my people and I shall be their God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that Paul talks about the, the glorious inheritance means that he wants them to know how valuable they are to God. There it is. He wants them to know that you have value, that you have worth. You are so valuable to God that God would send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die your death. You missed a good spot to shout. That's how valuable you are to God. And Paul says, I want you to know how valuable you are, how worthy you are. That God would send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die the worst death. Whew, I want us to know our value, church. Woman of God, you are valuable. Every time you start to question your value, look to the cross. Man of God, you are valuable. Every time you begin to question your value, look to the cross. Your value is not placed in anything physical. Your, thing, your value, man of God, is not placed in how much money you have. Your value, man of God, is not based on where you work, what, what your, your profession is. That is not your value. But what makes you valuable before God is the cross. Woman of God, your value is not in your beauty. It's fleeting. The older you get, the further south things start to go. There's no value. <laughs> Woman of God, your, your mothers on Mother's Day, that is not what gives you value. Yeah. Love them, raise them, and send them. 
But that is not what gives you value. What gives you value is that God has sent his son to die so that you can be adopted into his family. Husbands, preach to yourself, Brandon. That is not what gives you value in making sure your wife is happy every day of the week. Wife, that is not what gives you value. You belong to God. You are a child of God. And that is what gives us value. And Paul says, my prayer is that you would know that. This essentially is the reason we sin. It's because we seek value in other things outside of God. And so that's our prayer, is that you would know your value. You are the inheritance of God. Thirdly, Paul says, I also want you to know I want you to be enlightened so that you know the vast power of God. He says, I want you to know how powerful God is. And, and the reason I want you to know how powerful God is is because there are a lot of there's a lot of power in this world. Rome was powerful. The emperor was powerful, so much so that it was that the, the people underneath a, a Roman authority were supposed to confess that Caesar was lowered. They believed that Caesar was their savior. The Caesar, all he had to do was speak a word and things would happen. There was, there's all sorts of powerful people in their world and in our world. But there's, an, uh, uh, there's, a, there's another great power behind all these evil forces. Satan himself. He is a powerful foe, a powerful enemy. There's all sorts of evil and, and going on in the world. And Paul says, I want you to know that the God you serve, the God you worship, is more powerful than any other power. He says, let me show you how powerful God is. Death is powerful. No man or woman can escape death. Death was so powerful that it even had its grip on, the, on God's own son. But Paul says, let me show you how powerful your God is. On Easter Sunday, God took the cold, lifeless body of Jesus Christ and raised that cold, lifeless body from the grave. He says that's how powerful God is, that he raised Jesus from the dead. You want to see the magnitude of God's power? Look to the resurrection. Yeah, yeah. Friday, we see the love of God. But on Sunday, we see the power of God. Death could not hold him down. <laughs> Matter of fact, it was impossible 
for death to keep him down. Okay, okay, you don't like that. He says, let me show you how powerful now this son is. Not only was he raised from the dead, but now God has seated him at his right hand. And, and the right hand, that's the seat of honor and power. And if God is now, Jeff, get ready. If Christ is now seated, that means every other power now is under his feet. They are now his footstool. His feet never get tired because every other power, every other enemy, every other ruler is where he rests his feet. Every other power is now under his feet, which means that the, even that power has to submit to his authority. Satan is our most powerful enemy, but even he has to knock on the doors of heaven and get permission from God to touch his anointed. Even Satan has to submit to the power of God. He is, Christ is now seated far above every power, every dominion, every ruler. And Paul says, I want you to know the power of God. So now you don't have to fear all these other powers. Because power belongs to God. You, you don't have to stay up late at night uh, being anxious over all these powerful people. Because power belongs to God. He, he has a name that's above every name. He's king of kings and Lord of lords, because power belongs to God now, we can trust in that power. And that same power is now in us through his Holy Spirit. The fact that Christ is seated on his throne, this is my last little piece, and I'm done. He's now the head of the church. That word head signifies both origin and source. The church exists because of Jesus Christ. None of us can survive without our head. It's the source of life. But by making Christ also the head of the church, he is now our leader. He tells us what to believe and how to behave. And only he has the authority to do that. Not the Pope. Not the pastor. Not the elders. Only Christ. Because he is the great head of the church. So what do we do now that Christ is the head of the church? We submit to him. He is Lord. We obey the head of the church. We exist because of him, but we also need him to continue to exist. That's why Jesus tells us that we must abide in him. The Christ is the head. The church is the body. And to the body, there are many members. Friends, to say all I need is Jesus, 
To say all, all, to say that I love Jesus but I hate the church is to say I love Brandon but I hate Connie. Them fighting words. Remember, the church is the bride of Christ. Let me use the biblical metaphor that we're dealing with. To say that I love the church, I mean, I love Christ, but I hate the church, is to say, I love my head, but I hate my body. Decapitate yourself and see what happens. That's essentially what we do when we start talking about all I need is Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus has said all you need is your family, your church. He's given us one another. That's why we ought to love one another, care for one another, walk on one another, be hospitable to one another, pray for one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another. Why? Because we're all parts of the same body. The arm needs the rest of the body. The foot needs the rest of the body. The ear needs the rest of the body. We're the body. Christ is the head. And you need to be connected to the body to survive. Cut off my arm, and the arm will wither and die. Cut off my foot, the same thing will happen. So Christ has this prayer that the Spirit would give us wisdom and illumination, revelation, so that we would grow in our knowledge of God. This is what we need to pray for ourselves. This is what we need to be praying for one another. This is what we need to be praying for our children and our youth that we would grow in our knowledge of him, that we would know him better and deeper. And as a result of knowing him, our affections will grow for him. As a result of knowing him, we will become more holy because our God is holy. The more we know him, the more authentic we, we worship him. We must know him. Worship team, you can make your way back. You cannot know him without Jesus. This spirit cannot be received without Jesus. So there may be someone in here today, you're saying, I want to be wise. I want to have that revelation. I want to know God. How do I do it? It starts first of all. By acknowledging that God is holy, he is our creator, and he has created us to worship him, to obey him. But by nature, we are unable to do that. We sin against him, we break his laws. And what we deserve is eternal separation from God in hell. But God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to a cross at Calvary to die for your sin. And he died. How do I know he died? Because he was buried. His death atoned for your sin. His, by his death, the, the wrath of God has now 
been turned away. The wrath of God has now been satisfied through Jesus Christ. And you can have, instead of being, uh, having eternal damnation, you can now have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How do we know that, God, that, that Christ's death was sufficient? Because God raised him up bright early Sunday morning with all power in his hand. And it is because of our justification that Christ was raised from the dead. We are justified. We are declared not guilty. We have been declared righteous because of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so now you respond to this free gift by putting all of your trust and confidence in Jesus Christ and him alone. This is eternal life, that you would know God. We know God through Jesus. And so for somebody, the response here is to turn away from whatever it is you've been believing in for so long and to turn and by believing in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, for deliverance from God's wrath, to be rescued from God's wrath. Somebody else is here, you're saved and you've been saved for a long time. You're saying, Brandon, how do I respond? Paul's simple word to us today is we need to know God better. And that knowledge begins with prayer. Praying to God that we would be enlightened concerning his power, his inheritance. That's where it begins, praying. But don't just start off giving all these repetitions all these supplications, all these requests, start by telling God, thank you. That's what we need more in the church is an attitude of gratitude. If we were more grateful, maybe we would criticize one another less. If we were grateful, maybe we wouldn't complain about the building as much. I'm preaching to myself. Maybe if we were grateful, we wouldn't complain about the worship experience as much. Because our brothers and sisters in China have to go underground to do this. But yet we came here with so much freedom and liberty. We need to be grateful for what God is doing in the lives of others. Faith and love. Pretend we need to be praying for one another. That God would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that we would know God deeper. So that we might love him. Let's stand.